and I think most companies are still struggling with this, but security being buried deep in organizations, I think that's a red flag for me. I think security needs to be at peer level to where engineering, IT teams are. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Rinky Seti, CISO at Rubrik, about the dangers of burying your security team so deep within an organization that security has to start competing with other departments for visibility and budget. Cybersecurity is in the news almost every day. So why then do some organizations still stick their security teams in the basement, so to speak, only to be rolled out when their expertise is needed, generally in crisis? All right, Rinky, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. If you would, for the listener, tell the listener a little bit about yourself. Who are you and uh, where do you work? Sure. I'm uh, Rinki Sati. I um, have been in the security industry for a little over 15 years now. I have worked for several different companies in the Bay Area. I've worked for utility company PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, Walmart, eBay, Intuit, um, Palo Alto Networks, IBM for a short stint. And I am now currently the chief information security officer at Rubric. Um, outside of work, I've got two little kids, a boy that's seven years old and a girl that's almost 12, and just enjoy the outdoors, hiking, exercising, that kind of thing. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, um, I appreciate that intro. Uh, I like one of the questions I'd like to sort of start off with, because I think it's important, is what advice would you have for your younger self or for yourself that that um, was maybe earlier in, in the career before you became an officer. Anything in particular you'd like to share if you're sort of, you know, leaning over your own shoulder, giving that advice, what would that be? I think the biggest thing for me was entering into cybersecurity was an unknown for me. I have a computer science degree um, and was a developer and a database engineer before I uh, got into security. And you know, when you're learning a new field and especially a field with very few women, um, you kind of feel like you need to be a perfectionist and you have to get your projects right. And you've got to make sure that you dot all your I's, cross all your T's. And so you, you work really hard at being as perfect as you can. And looking back, the biggest learning moments and what's drove success in my career are the risks that I've taken and the mistakes that I've made. So I wish I made more and I wish I took bigger risks. And I think the biggest advice would be, be innovative, take big risks and don't be afraid to fail. Okay. So you, you were a CS major in undergrad or graduate school? Yeah, I was a CS major in undergrad and, uh, and my security degree from graduate school. At what point did you decide, you know, you're, you're doing development, you talked about being a DBA. What was the progression into InfoSec? If you can share that, what was that that switch? Because those those are very different. I think they build nicely on one another, but that's a that can be a big jump and a, and I think a rare one. So, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think the big turning point for me was I took a cryptography course in undergrad and was fascinated by it, and it was the only security course offered in a computer science program at the university that I went to. And I think very few universities even 
had a class like that in their computer science program. So I was fortunate to be exposed to it. I also graduated at a time that where the economy had taken a downturn, there weren't very many jobs out. And I think, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of luck that there was an opening for an information security job as I was leaving my undergrad. And um, as I was talking to one of the hiring managers for PG&E, actually, um, who I wasn't even on the interview list for, but I went to the, the you know, the, as they were recruiting out of college, they had a recruiting night um, and I went anyway, because one of my buddies was being recruited by them. And I ended up talking to a hiring manager who just said, hey, are you even being recruited by us? I said, no, we just started ch- chatting on my favorite course, which happened to be cryptography and said, we've got an information protection opening. We've got to get you on the interview list for it. And then the rest was magic after that. Okay, so you kind of made that transition as you were still in the school or just finishing up. It wasn't as if you were doing sort of CS or you know development or DBA work for let's say five years and then switched over. It was sort of a last minute interview change. Is that correct? No, I was actually so throughout. Uh, I worked throughout college and I always had a, a CS related uh, job in and I, I was doing development work and database work while I was in college on the side. Got it. And then I didn't make a choice. It was just, I happened to stumble upon this course and all the jobs I was interviewing for, aside from this one, were all development jobs. And this one happened to just come across randomly. And I was like, oh, I don't know what information security information <laughs> protection is, but I'll, yeah, I'll absolutely take the interview. And it ended up being, you know, something that I, I was really interested in. And I took the job when they offered it to me. No, that's awesome. I love stuff like that. That's sort of a, you were in school, you were working using sort of what you were taught, but then there was maybe a found that kind of became the foundation to something almost random at the end. And, and the crypto thing kind of helped you. Something similar that I had years and years ago, of all the classes we take and all the money we spend, there was one class I had on my resume or one set of skills associated with it. It was Unix Linux administration that led to me getting a job. It, it just randomly, they needed that skill set. And there was this old crusty system that they had inherited from an acquisition. And they're like, we need someone to support this. And I got a job. And it was, it was actually a great job, but it's that, that one thing. So around crypto, did you study the kind of the history of crypto too, if I can ask? Like, or was it more just applied sort of the math around it? I think it was the history of, of cryptography and then different ways, uh, like different cryptographic methods and, you know, how you, you know, we did the whole talking about keys and, but yeah, they did go through the history and the professor that I was taking the class with had actually written the textbook, which I think was the first cryptography textbook out there. It's an awesome topic. And some of my grad work, I took a crypto class and one of my favorite books for those listening, if you're also interested in crypto, the code book, which goes back into the history and sort of the application of crypto, whether it's a Caesar cipher or a substitution or, or um, you know, whatever it may be. So Mary Queen of Scots, uh, some some fascinating stuff. I don't know if you had a chance to read that or not, but it's it's been a while since I've looked at it. But I remember having fun reading it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So a little more, and and I don't want to focus too much on on gender, but gender matters. He mentioned earlier that especially in CS and DBA work, that there weren't a lot of women in in that probably in the classes. In fact, that many I'm guessing many of those classes, you might have been the only female. What advice do you have, I mean, looking back again on, on your career and the choices you've made, you talked about risks and you brought up gender. 
anything that you would recommend someone to push on a little bit and maybe be a little more aggressive or what advice might you have there? Were you overwhelmed being the only female in the class? Is there anything during interviewing that you would have done differently or, or give advice on? During school, there were a lot of classes where I was the, where I was the only woman in class. And there were times where it felt like nobody looks like me in the room here. Am I in the right field? Yeah. <laughs> and I've realized that that's actually because of, because of the way that I think and the different thoughts that I bring to the table, that's actually worked to my advantage in a big way. And so I don't think folks need to, I don't think women that are in the field where if they're still one of the few in their classes, there's nothing you need to change. I think just being confident about who you are and that that's going to bring a different perspective to the job that you're looking for. Because I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in our industry still today to bring in more thought diversity and just kind of how we're solving problems. Clearly, we still have a lot of work to do in that way. So we need different kinds of people to help us go and solve those problems. You couldn't have said it more perfectly. You know, honestly, by many measures, what we have done in the past is is mediocre at best. And I think that getting that diversity of thought and some new thinking, and frankly, are some some different different skill sets around how can we be more more friendly and and more thoughtful, and maybe less. Um, you know, I come from a milita- military family, but maybe less militaristic in the way that we run our programs. You, know, you you mentioned earlier, the other thing I wrote down is you felt the need to be perfect or to, to and it seemed like it was associated with gender. It may just be a, a personality trait, but do you think that was too much? Did you, do you spend or have you spent too much time on trying to be perfect when, you know, did you self-apply that, that stress or was someone else putting that on you? And what advice do you have around that? Can you talk a bit about more about that? Why do you feel the need to be perfect? Yeah, I think I did back then because, again, there were not a lot of people that looked like me in the field and definitely not day-to-day in my job at the time. And people didn't know at the time, how do you teach someone out of co- They wanted college new grads that you know were at BGME. They needed to bring in a younger workforce at the time. So it's not only that I was a woman. I was really young on that team. They didn't know how to teach someone about cybersecurity and the resources weren't there at the time like they are today, right? There's... A- a lot more people there. There's a lot more books written about it. There's a lot more user like uh, case studies that, and just there's so much more information out there. So all these things, and it was every day worried about failing and what am I going to do? Like, what's the job I'm going to take on if I'm not good at this? So it was really, really busting to make sure I was studying our information security, that I didn't make a mistake. If I did something wrong, would I be fired? <laughs> Things like that, because you do have a lot of control, even as a junior security engineer in a company, you have a lot of control on doing things um, and you're writing the policies and things like that. And so I think there was a lot of pressure in that way. And then again, there were a lot of guys in the field. It seemed like a lot of the guys were all buddies outside of work and stuff like that. And you don't feel like you have that camaraderie. Um, and so it felt like a little bit isolated. So all those things, I think, and and looking back at it, maybe it was self-inflicted pressure and feeling that way. Maybe it's a little bit of my personality, but I think there's something to be said that you look around, there's no one like you there. And then in addition to that, you're taking on this big role that doesn't have a lot of, you know, history on it. So it's pretty, it's, it was, it was tough. I can remember a different set of circumstances for me, but earlier in your career, you feel, I think everyone feels a little bit vulnerable. You haven't really worked enough good years to have confidence or the experience 
and you want to do a good job and you don't want to fail and get fired. And you mentioned that. And I can remember being worried about that for probably the first two or three or maybe four years. Am I going to get fired? And then if then you feel like you don't know enough to go do something else, or it's going to take a long time and you, know, you have these new expenses, you're paying off debt. So yeah, that's, and then to add on what you had, which is, it sounds like we've all experienced, you know, maybe a, a click, maybe you're not invited to all the other types of social events that happen, knowing that those are the places where a lot of other work gets done. And so you were probably at a disadvantage from that standpoint, or at least I know I felt that way personally. It's, so it's tough. So how do you take those feelings and those observations from earlier in your career? How does that change you as a leader today? What are the things, if you're giving advice, let's say to someone or to me, how does that affect how you lead today or does it? Oh, it absolutely has. And, you know, it's, it's interesting you ask that because until this moment, I haven't really consciously thought about that, but you know, creating an inclusive environment and, um, and I talked about thought diversity a lot, you know, it's so important to me because I remember when you're working with a bunch of people that think alike, they go to grab, grab drinks and they're talking about how they're going to solve a problem. Sometimes you're not as creative with solving the problem and you end up with the solution where you haven't heard the different perspectives on the table. Um, and so that's been incredibly, incredibly important to me. And I think there's some problems we've solved in really creative ways because I've been able to build teams where we are thinking out of the box, not necessarily even looking at the security talent pool, but really looking outside on what are we trying to solve and what are the skill sets we really need to solve this problem? And is it the small talent pool in security that is really, really hard to <laughs> go and recruit? Or can we think differently about this and pull new folks and new blood into this? So I think that's been really important to me throughout my career. And then on the flip side, there's a lot of things I've learned too on how do you insert yourself as well, right? Of course, being a junior employee, you're still learning the work dynamics, as you mentioned. I think you nailed it. Uh, you know, you start to learn how do you insert yourself and how do you get in those uh, in those circles that you may not naturally be included in. But I think as a leader, I've realized kind of that again, going back to that point I made around thought diversity and inclusivity, I think it's super important. I think for those that that are listening, practicing just sharing kind of in a constructive way, sharing what you're thinking. So if you know that there's an after hours event, and even if it's unofficial, rather than stewing about it, maybe ask instead, say, Hey, I, you know, I heard you guys went out after work, you know, maybe next time, you know, I, I'd, I'd really like to take part in that. And, or to, I assume you also talk about work and have fun. I, you know, I'm new here. I, I'd like to take part of that just to ask. I didn't have the confidence to to jump in and, and ask that out of the gate. But again, probably about that three or four year mark, I started sort of asking and just saying, hey, like I'd, I'd like to be involved in that. I'd like to, to benefit from that. And finally people said yes. Uh, you know, and some of it happened naturally and some of it was more clicky. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly my story. I think five years into my career, maybe four years is what it took. And then I was like, I'm coming too. <laughs> right, right. Now the flip side, and, and maybe you've experienced this, Sometimes you'll find that it's just a collection of people looking to sort of drown their sorrows or complain. So it's not, but there's still work that's getting done and, and people get assigned to projects and promotions are discussed and all this other sorts of, depending on who's, who's there. So it, it could be something though, that then now you're hooked into this and you've, then you seem, you know, you feel obligated to go and it's sort of a time sink. So there's a, there's a little of both. I don't know if you've had the opposite happen now, probably have, but 
it can be a little more delicate to manage at that point. Yeah. I think having two kids changes your life. And so you have to learn to then balance it. And I think that you reach a certain point where you know what's important and you're making choices every day. And, you know, every choice is a choice you have to be proud of. And, you know, you might be compromising one thing when you decide to go do another and you start feeling confident through your experiences and better about where you're spending your time and think decisions you made years ago may not be what you want to do now. <laughs> well, I think as you sort of earn your stripes, uh, you get, not only do you have the experience, but you get a little more well-practiced at diplomatically saying no as well, right? You can, you, you practice it enough. It's not that you don't care or don't, don't want to be a part of whatever's happening. It's that you have other, other obligations and other facets of your life. Whereas when you're younger and you say no, it could be detrimental to, to your career. So we had an earlier chat a while back and, and one of sort of my formulas when chatting with new people is sort of one of two things. It's discussing either what people are passionate about or what irritates them. And you mentioned sort of balance in terms of things you're, you're passionate about, meaning the split between business and technical expertise uh, for CISOs and security executives. How important do you think it is really for a CISO to have technical expertise? Does it really matter? I think it depends. Um, so I've worked at different companies of different sizes, security teams of different sizes. I can tell you in the current role I'm in, technical expertise is, was important. And I don't mean technical in the sense that you've got to be like a security architect that you know no can go really deep in a certain area, but you need to have a baseline technical knowledge and be able to say, here's kind of st- strategically program I'm going to put in place. Here's some of the technologies I might bring in. You've got to have some baseline understanding. It can't just be I'm dependent on my people because you know, in the role that I took on, I was building a team from scratch. And so there was an opportunity to lean on. But I think CISOs and security leaders have to be strategic, have to be able to partner. You have to understand the business really well. Um, and so I would say if I was to weigh one over the other, you, I think that business savviness has to be there. But I think a mix of the two is what I'm, I've started to see that everybody everybody wants. Like when you're inter- going through interview process, whether it's a big or small company, not just interviewing with the business side of the house, you also interview with fairly technical folks. You kind of have to have the right mix. Where do you think CISOs in general are most uncomfortable? Meaning when, when they get put into scenarios, if there was a cumulative sort of skill set that most CISOs lack, what do you think that skill set is between business and technical? And what do you think it is? And, and what do you think needs to be done to kind of manage that deficit? I'll try to answer that. I'm going to give kind of a mixed answer for that. Hopefully you don't answer the question, <laughs> but you can press me further <laughs> if it doesn't. So I've seen two, two kind of types of CISOs and it's rare to find the, the right mix. And I'm not saying that I've nailed this in any way, but I think sometimes you find these CISOs that are very business savvy but you try to dig deep with them in any area of security and you can't, right? Because they're talking at such a high level. And so I think then you talk to CISOs at really small companies and they're security architects. And they're now they're, they're completely lacking like the things that the other CISO may be thinking about, which is the business savviness, crisis management, those kind of things. And these guys are super technical and they're in the weeds that they're missing the business partnerships that they need to have 
there's kind of like two camps of CISOs. And, you know, there's certain companies that are right in the middle of that and they need a really good mix of the two. It's not just a business partnering crisis management, but they need somebody that can also dive a little bit deeper technically. So it depends. And I've worked at, again, worked at a security technology company where you've got to be savvy, but you've got to understand the business. You've got to be talking to customers. So it's, I think it just depends on the type of company, but it seems to me like what I think is best is when there's a mix of the two, but I don't think being on either one side of that point is going to give you the right perspective and how you move the business forward from a security perspective. So this isn't meant to be a trick question, and I don't even have an answer for this. But if there's such a wide spectrum of sort of archetype of person, and we have on one end technical and one end sort of business savviness, but they have the same title, is it really the same job? Name any other C-level position in a big company that comes with the risk and the budget and all the rest. Do you think there's the same breadth that we have with the CISO? That's an, that's interesting. No, right? Because I think given the title, and sometimes you see titles where it's in a CISO, but they're a security architect or that it's a, their title is senior director of security or secure, head of security, but they're an actual CISO. Right. And um, I think it, it just depends. I think really small companies, they just need architectural support. And so it's really a security architecture role or a CISO. Other companies, they're so large and they have all these different security teams. They need a CISO that's primarily focused on risk management. So I think it just, it's kind of varies, right? And you look at banks, they have CISO defined in a certain way. I think the CISO term is widely used, but there's different responsibilities that each CISO might have. Yeah, I, I just, I sort of thought of the question on the fly. But to me, I think that it's something that that we have to begin really analyzing to figure out, you know, if we're going to be treated sort of seriously, and I think in some organizations we are, but in others, the CISO is sort of just a checkbox. And along with that, we are still struggling to identify how do you grade a program? How do you grade a CISO? What's a good CISO versus a bad one? There's a lot of things we could talk about, but we won't be able to def- define that clearly what's our version of good until we define kind of the position. And I think if we were sitting around, you know, sharing a glass of wine or whatever, talking about the CFO, we would have much less wiggle room in our sort of definition of good and the talent that it takes to do the job. So more of a statement than a question, but I mean, do you think that that becomes more clear or do you think there's, do you think there'll ever be a day when, when the CISO job will be more identifiable and more clearly understood? Or do you think it's always going to be this sort of muddy, it depends kind of answer? I think it has to change, right? Just given the number of regulations around security and privacy, just given the, um, you know, how different companies have had to completely change their business because they've had a breach or something like that. And more so and more so security being talked about at the board level and at the executive level, I think it's going to have to standardize. And it's not just the role of the CISO, but it's their responsibilities. It's the org design. Who do they report to, right? There's no, usually there's no question on who's the CFO going to report to. But when you talk about CISOs, it's all over the map (laughs) in their reporting structure, org structure. Just one CISO may have compliance. Another CISO may not have compliance. One CISO has fraud and another doesn't. So it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, you hit on something else I think is really important that that the, not only the individual skill set, but sort of the, the shadow that they cast, the realm of influence is, is different. It's not the same, which I think creates other sorts of 
issues organizationally. In that same vein, when I asked you what irritates you, you did bring up organizational structure. What do you think most organizations, let me phrase it this way, what's sort of your biggest red flag when you hear about of a, a bad security organization? Like what's the thing that irritates you most about that yeah. when, when looking at somebody else's program? Yeah, I think, you know, just an in industry, and I think most companies are still struggling with this, but security being buried deep in organizations, I think um, that's a that's a red flag for me. I think security needs to be at, you know, at peer level to where engineering IT teams are and need to be pretty high up in the organization. So I think whenever I hear about security teams that are buried super deep in the in a company, that's irritating, especially today, right? I think when I started my career, like security wasn't even known, but today where it's in the news every single day, I don't understand why it's still buried deep. I think that's a really important uh, decision-making factor for me if I was to join a different company. How does the company view security? How do the executives meet, view security? How often is security presenting to the board and where does security sit? So I think those are really important things. Without question. I mean, what do you think, what is the negative outcome for those listening that maybe report into a CISO or maybe they are a CISO? And they're sort of buried in the organization. What's the result? What's the outcome of being sort of too low in the org? I think um, depending on who they're reporting to, a lot of times it can be a conflict. Like, you know, you report to an IT or an engineering organization. Are you then in a, in a position where you can report risks in that organization? Or are you being pushed down? You know, um, because many times IT and engineering security priorities will compete with each other. Um, and so your security is talking about risks and that may not be number one priority, but all of a sudden the, de- the decision maker on that is someone who has conflicting interests. So I think that's the biggest thing. And so the CISO might be bubbling up risks, but then are they making it to the right level? Is it the right folks accepting it? And if you were then to have a security breach or something like that, that was related to that risk, you know, there's a loss of accountability and things like that. Um, so I think there's there's that piece. There's, you know, how are you funding security? Is that too deep? And then who's asking for the funding if you're buried really deep? And then if, you know, how is, if you say funding for security is approved, how are you splitting that funding up? Is security actually being invested in in the right way? So there's a lot of challenges, I think, if it's very deep. Yeah, absolutely. Pushing on that a little more. I mean, if, if I'm part of the ELT or the CEO and I say, well, you know, but you have all this technical stuff. You have all these things. I see firewall and IPS and I see all the software. That all sounds really technical to me. And and the person in charge of tech things is the CIO or the CTO. So shouldn't that be where you report? What do you respond with that? Should you not own all those technical things? You know, how do you how do you sort of that's a sentiment that I've heard in ELT meetings in terms of giving advice to people. That's been pushback. So how do you what's your retort to that? I think the conversation shouldn't be about firewalls. It should be about risks. And it's, you know, you've got to bubble it up so it's not geek speak um, per se. It's, you know, here are the risks that are in the organization. And when you think about the non-firewall and the non-tech issues, there's a lot of like security culture and user behavior. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that if you bubble up risks in the right way, it's that ELT that needs, in, in some cases, right? Hopefully not all cases, it's that ELT that needs to be accepting the risk or saying, no, we're not going to take the risk. And so 
it absolutely needs to be at that level. And if it was, if a breach was to happen, absolutely every person in that ELT room is going to be involved. And all of a sudden, you know, you're going to see investments in security. And so I think having the right conversations and I think setting expectations as a CISO and how do you want me to present this information to you guys? Because it needs to be at this level is really important too. So for me, what's worked is making it a risk discussion, being ready with details, because there are some people that will want to dive deep and say, okay, tell me all the issues. But starting at that risk level on here are the key risks. And we need to decide as a collective team on what we're going to accept and what's not acceptable. What's your, in your career, not necessarily in your current position, but just in general, what's your favorite risk on which to report? What do you think is a really good metric or, or thing to share, whether it's a risk or some other type of measure? What's your, you have to have a favorite. What is it? There's two that I'll talk about if that's okay. One is, and this is just an area I've been super passionate about that we still haven't solved for as an industry, but I love talking about the user behavior because it's so complex (laughs) and it's really hard to prove. But I think that's a metric I like showing that, look, before we put a security program in place, here's, here's how bad or how risky our people were. And this is what we've done. And these are the programs we've put in place. And now here's where our risk level is as it relates to our employees and our people. I think that's a really good one. It generally tends to, uh, tends to resonate with executives, the board, and it's just an interesting one. Um, and, you know, there's a, I think uh, where security and psychology and people come together, I think it's a really interesting one that industry is still working on how do we do this the right way. And then the second one is around, you know, I used to lead the security operations center for Palo Alto Networks. And I loved showing the metric where we could talk about how did we, enable the team to do threat hunting, just showing that slide. And, you know, I think people have seen it a million times, but, you know, what were the number of raw events that we saw, good and bad? How did that translate into bad events then that needed to be followed up on? How many of those were automated? How many of them actually required security analysts to go and follow up on? And then of those, now those use cases that people needed to follow up on, how many of those have we automated? And because of that automation, that saved our analyst time, what things were we able to spend time just going and doing threat hunting that have resulted in improvements in our environment? And that slide was like a money slide too, you know, just to see, show that we're not just growing our security operations center with people and adding staff, but really are focused on automation and people talk about automation, but here's the benefit of that automation. And it wasn't just the automation itself, but it's the time freed up that they could now go and find valuable things in the environment. So I think those two things are the, I love them and I would have them as a part of my programs going forward. Yeah. You hit, you hit on a lot there. And I think that we finding a way to articulate the second one in particular. So it's, you're proactively going out and looking for things that wouldn't have normally triggered an alert or an event. So you're proactively looking and then having the feedback loop to then automate the future detection or response to that. So it's you're not just resting on what you already have. You're looking for sort of undefined bad, or you have a theory you're going to go out. Does this apply to us? If you find it, then the automation. So it's going to take a little bit of extra human capital to go look, but then the automation of it allows sort of a savings in, in future effort. That I think a lot of people miss that and probably don't report on it either at all or, or well. So you're, you're hunting and then the, the measure of effort saved. 
how did you at an executive level, assuming I'm accurate in my description, at an executive level, could you talk us through that a little bit of, of what, what did that slide look like? Just, just a little bit for the listener. Yeah. So um, at an executive level, and you know, this was back when I was at a security technology company working at it, so where it resonates too. And it actually resonated with other CISOs and customers that I do want to talk to, but we had, we displayed this in terms of a funnel, right? And the way that, the way that we showed it was there'd be a funnel with the top part of it, if you can imagine. So like imagine an uh, upside down triangle and the top part, the, the biggest part of it would be all of your events. Then you like, you have a line in the middle of the triangle. So you have your good events and your bad events in the bad events. Now, those are the ones you're going to start looking into. Now, some of that will be solved by automation that you already have in place or the technology you already have in place that's going to auto, auto remediate or auto block or whatever. And then out of that, so let's say you started with a million bad events out of that, let's say 900,000 were resolved on their own. Then you have 100,000 that need follow-up, either augmented by some level of automation or by human intervention. Um, and so let's say there's 1,000 that needed human intervention in a quarter. Those are the ones you're going to start automating. So you're going down the funnel, the funnel's getting smaller towards the bottom. And then at the end you have, okay, these were the number of security incidents that landed because of these. And then you have, okay, because you drove some automation, you may have like on that slide or on another slide, here's the number of threat hunting cases that we were able to go and tackle. Here's the risk that reduced in our environment. Um, and you would have some stories that you'd tell on that, right? That we were able to go find this thing that we normally wouldn't have because we would have been chasing all the millions of tickets. But instead, we spent our time threat hunting, finding that needle in a haystack. We're able to reduce this following risk in our environment. And this is what we're doing through automation. There's a little bit of storytelling there. So this is a very typical slide we present to the board um, and that I hope to present here uh, as uh, soon as well at Rubric. Yeah, have you ever done a presentation, like a public presentation on this topic? I have many. <laughs> <laughs> Just curious if what that looked like. And I was going to opening the door to if you have one uh, coming up to to plug that uh, if you were if you were going to be presenting a, a topic. It's something, you know, sort of the measurement of effort and the savings of it is is very important. I think we need to count more things around that rather than just sort of these statistics number of antivirus alerts or something like that. It's it's an indicator to me of a more mature program. Not only that you do it, but then you can count it as well. I'm not talking about it. I'm not, I don't have a talk anytime soon on it, but um, I've had a lot of one-on-one conversations in the past at previous companies um, with other CISOs around this. And you know, I get asked every now and then, can you share the template that you're using? So I'm happy to share it out with folks that listen to this and you know want to reach out for it. But um, don't have a talk planned anytime soon. <laughs> sure. I want to go back. You've mentioned, so we, we covered sort of the, what I'll call the hunt, sock, effort, saved. But you mentioned user behavior and user behavior risk and psychology. That's a very rich area as well and, and something that I think a lot of organizations struggle with. Could you talk a little bit more about what are your sort of your favorite topics there or where do you think people need to go? related to sort of the psychology and user behavior of an organization? Yeah, I think like, you know, one of the things that really bugs me is that we're all still doing training and regulations or compliance when you're trying to get your product certified for SOC 2 or whatever it might be. All these certifications require that you have an annual awareness training and that you are, you're tracking it. And like, when you think about the impact of that on an employee, it's 
zero, if not negative, right? Because people think, well, I took this security training once a year and I have some knowledge on security and it's had zero impact. Uh, You know, they learned nothing through it. And even if they did for the minute, it's not something they're going to remember. It's not contextual. So I think like having contextual training is so, so important that when you're doing something that you may not be aware is even wrong, somebody right away tells you that, hey, that's not the right thing to do. And here's why. That's how people learn. And that's why phishing testing, you know, and people may argue with me, there's both sides of this one that I think phishing testing has good metrics. You can show improvement and progress and you can show your users getting better and more savvy as it relates to phishing because you have that regular testing and it's contextual. Someone clicks on it, then they train right away, but it's lacking in other areas, right? Like when a developer is going and they're going to go and configure their, or, you know, spin up an instance in AWS, or, you know, you have a employee that's going to go put a document up in Google driver box. Those are all moments of training if there's the wrong settings. And so I think technologies are getting there to provide that more contextual training, but it's still kind of all over the place. It's not being done in an organized way. And we should almost get to a point where, again, where we can give a risk score to an employee and they understand why they're at their risk score and that you're able to give them training when it's relevant to them versus when it's relevant to, you know, the company because you need to pass a compliance requirement or whatever it may be. Yeah, I think we have a lot of negative outcomes that are sort of forced on us as the result of compliance means well, but it often generates programs that that end up kind of being a boat anchor in many cases. So what are the things, I mean, I don't think you can train a workforce to be a security analyst. And, And in many cases, I think that's what we're trying to do. I think things like phishing training are important. Um, I think you should have the capability and certainly education around that. My big complaint, and I'm curious to see what, what your take is, my main complaint is I see many typically legacy organizations that'll put phishing training in and then penalize the end user when they make a mistake. And they're also not willing to sort of clean up their mail system to either highlight or further protect or eliminate certain risky processes. And so it becomes a scapegoat in many cases of the end user, you know, the blame kind of goes to them when in fact there's not enough effort being made to kind of clean up the rest of the trash again, sort of on the, what I'll call the it and business process side. Do you have a, a counterpoint or any ideas around that as well? Do you agree, disagree? Yeah, I agree. So I think prevention is key. You've got the security team's responsibility is to put in the right technology look at processes, ensure that there's security built into the things that we already have in place, and then ensure that users are trained on those, on those, uh, on the technology as needed, on the processes. And so I think getting that right is step number one and is the most important step. However, I think use also, I think employees need to own security as a part of their role. Otherwise it doesn't work. You know, there's always ways, there's going to be ways where you can bypass or if you're not trained on a process or something like that, you know, you may, you know, there might, you might put enough technology and processes in place and there's still ways to circumvent or ignore them. And so I think it's important. It's an, and it's not a either one. Um, but I think everybody owning security as a part of their job is an important thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has to be part of a culture. I think that everyone has to realize and say something if they if they see something uh you know some of the most interesting 
investigations I've been a part of back when I was an intrusion analyst and leading teams were actually emails that were forwarded or issues or screenshots, you know, that were sent from fellow employees that were non-technical, which is actually really good. You know, you can, a lot of times they see things that, that we miss or that we didn't have visibility into. So I think that's the awareness. I think a lot of organizations still don't have even just a friendly way to contact InfoSec. You know, what's, does everyone know? In my prior life, we would hand out even as part of their, their badge information, they had kind of the 1-800 line back into the SOC, everyone. That turned out to be very fruitful. You can also be overwhelmed as well when there's a third party that's acting on behalf of the company, sends an email, and then everyone thinks it's suspicious. You know, we sort of generate these business processes that, you know, they get, get an outside, you know, a customer survey or something, you know, and then that sets off an alarm. Yeah. And I, just to add one thing, you know, that just popped up in my head, which is, you know, I, don't, I think training is always like, there's the people that love it and are really passionate about it. And there's businesses that exist around security training or phishing testing, whatever it might be. And then there's the other side of it where folks think it's ineffective and uh, it's not the way to drive security. I, the one thing I do want to share is, you know, and, and it's one of the reasons I, I am passionate about like our employees do need to be appropriately trained and so forth. I got an email from an employee the other day. And it was thank you in all caps in the subject line because the phishing testing and training we do here helped him and his wife, uh, who his wife almost fell susceptible to a phishing attack. And they detected something in their personal lives because of the training that we're doing at the company. Now, I, you know, I think it's important because it's not just a, it's not just a work, what they're doing at work. I think it's really important for us to realize that what we train them on, people take that home, they teach their kids. Kids have technology now in their hands, I think, when they're two or three years old. And it's important that I think they learn some basics around security and privacy and what to do and not do. So I think it's a really important thing that, you know, the job, even though we're teaching them on how to be secure and safe at work, it extends beyond that. You're teaching life skills, it seems, at this point. Yeah. (laughs) It's corny to say it that way, but at the point that you're getting thanked, you know, in someone's busy day that they wanted to send you a note about something that they learned, they were able to seemingly avoid a negative outcome because they had education at work. And so that's, that's a, a positive thing. You know, I think there's probably many security teams that probably don't get enough of those thank you messages. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. And then, so you don't realize that you're impacting people outside of work in that way. And, you know, when you think about most folks at home, they're not going to have firewalls and VPNs and all this other stuff, right? That protects you at work. And so anything you're teaching folks, they're, hopefully they're, they're going to take some of that in what they do outside of work as well. And hopefully we're helping secure beyond just the boundaries of work. A couple more questions before that, though. You work for a great company. It's one that I personally follow. Actually, a good friend of mine, Michael Oglesby, works there. He's one of your lead engineers. Uh, so a shout out to him. But what's the coolest part about your job at Rubrik? That's a good one. One of the things I love is Rubrik is moving into the security space. And I love this about my job at Palo Alto Networks as well when I was there. It's really, really fun when you get to not just build security in a company, but you get to be the user of your product um, and be the first customer and give feedback and then talk to other customers about how you you might be doing things differently. And so I love the fact that I'm getting, I'm getting to do that here at Rubrik. We're moving into the 
data governance space um, and data governance is a hot topic right now. And so being able to test that product early on um, and give feature requests and working with our product teams and almost be like a product manager on my own as well as, uh, you know, driving our security program here. I'd say that's the coolest part. I love that. Yeah. So being a customer first, I like that. And to kind of close out, the name of the show, as you know, is the new CISO. We covered a lot of topics today, but what does being a new CISO mean to you? I think it's been it's been a learning experience for sure. Um, but for me, I feel like the things that I've done in the past and what kind of armed me well. Um, and it's just been an exciting journey, I would say, being here at Rubric, being the first CISO at Rubric, and obviously being a new CISO. It's been great. I've learned from my peers and other folks that have been on the pop, uh, the Xbeam podcasts, as well as being able to take my learnings and share those with uh, other folks. But the biggest thing for me, I, I think, rubric being a new CISO, it's been cool working for a company that's only been around five years and being a new CISO here because thinking about security just differently and than how I've even done it in the past, because all of a sudden you don't have all this legacy tech or anything you're dealing with. So can we just do this in, in the ways in the in the the ways that the best practices that are written out there and do things in the right way right from the beginning? So I think for me that's the big thing that I've had that I'm excited about, and that's what new CISO I think is meant is meant for me here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate your insights and guidance. Again, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic, or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast.